Hello and welcome to episode 99 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad you joined me today to talk about bees. What a fun thing to talk about. The weather outside right now here in Western North Carolina, at least in my valley, is beautiful, sunny, and cold and windy. <laughs> I could do without the last two, but we did get, we had a few weeks of just warm, balmy weather for us, and it got me spoiled to it. The cold feels really cold right now, and also, whew, it got the bees way out ahead, but luckily this return to more typical mountain spring is, is not too severe. That said, the talk among all the beekeepers in the area right now is about making splits, and I'm going to just give you hopefully some some helpful tips and ways to think about things that I hope are, are helpful with virtually anything you do with your bees. There's probably 10 potential techniques that could be used to do it, but if you understand the the underlying pattern, the thing that you're trying to do, it is so much easy, easier to accomplish than if you're just trying to think your way through the recipe step by step. Now, when we're beginners, that's how we have to work. We have to pick a recipe, try it out, run with it, see what happens, try to reflect on it and learn from there. And then you can do it the same or different next time, depending on what you came up with. But I just believe that understanding why you're doing what you're doing and what the factors are that affect what you're doing, that if you know those things, that eventually, once you add in the technical skills, then you can be more creative. You can try things and not have to be step-by-step recipe-based anymore. But I think I've made it clear in the last few podcasts that whenever I say recipe-based, that is not an insult at all. That is what we all have to do when we're beginners or if we're just in a place in a situation where we don't have time to be creative and, and do something fancy, do any trick writing, then sometimes it is nice to have a me recipe memorized that you can do. And speaking of that, the recipe for the nucleus split that I mentioned in the last podcast, my version if you're listening to this now, then I have it posted because I'm not allowed to post this podcast until I get that recipe up for the patrons because I promised it to them. Patrons, thank you as always. You are what keep this podcast going. So before I get started talking about splits, I want to tell you about this little thing that happened in a store in my town. I went in a plant shop to buy a gift. Don't worry, I was not shopping for me. <laughs> of course, I was shopping for me too, but I, but I really did go in to, to get a plant as a gift. And there was a very young clerk there who knew a lot about plants. And so we were chatting about the various plants. And I don't know how it came up that I was a beekeeper, but you know, sometimes you let it slip or you say, oh yeah, I love that plant because my bees love it. And this young woman was like, oh, you have bees. And so she started talking to me about that. She said, how did your bees do this past winter? And I said, I am delighted to tell you that I had 100% survival of my bees. And that was across all three yards. So believe me, this was thrilling to me. She said, oh, I am so glad to hear that. She said, I just love bees. And I have a friend who took up bees last year. But unfortunately, when they went out to check the bees this spring, they were gone. They didn't make it. And so she asked me quite sincerely, what do you think makes the difference between the hives that make it and the hives that don't? And I thought, oh, girl, you do not know how much trouble you could be in if I really go into all that. <laughs> but I, I condensed it to the, for the public version, 
But let me tell you a little backstory on that. When she mentioned her friend, she mentioned the name, and I actually know this person, not personally, but I just know of them on social media. And before they got bees, I remembered they had had a lot of strong opinions about how bees should be cared for, and that part of that was that they shouldn't be messed with very often, if at all, if you could help it, and that that they would not be using any types of chemicals or treatments. Well, I don't use chemicals or treatments either. But I also know that if you are going to use tools other than chemicals, then in my opinion, you have to be very attentive. And so what I told the young woman, because I thought it might get back to her friend, is I said, just like the plants in the shop, I believe that hives need attentive and frequent monitoring and care. And I said, just like the plants in here, if you are checking on your beloved plant, or if it's a garden spot and you're walking by, looking around, seeing how it's doing, seeing how dry the soil is or how the leaves look, then if you have a problem, you're going to have time to have a lot of options. So if you catch that problem early, you've got a lot of options. However, if you don't pay any attention to that plant until it is just shriveled and laid over on the ground, there are not a lot of options, if any, and it's probably a goner. And I said, To me, hives are like that. If I am looking carefully with the thought of how's this hive looking? How's the queen looking? How are these bees looking? How's the brood looking? How's the comb looking? If I'm attentive to all that, then when I see something that's off, I have options to get out ahead of that and hopefully save the hive. Well, it was the most lovely thing to see. This young woman, her face just lit up and she said, oh, that makes perfect sense because she was a plants woman. She was a gardener. She and she knew that to be true. I mean, that's just really in gardening. There's a there's a truism that says you know anything, any plant that's kind of finicky that requires a lot of care, you want to be sure to plant it in a place that you walk by every day or at least every couple of days that you frequently look at it because if it's finicky, then you need to be on top of things. If it starts to look a little dry, you can take care of that. If and I, I love that on 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 two levels. One, it was because it helped me develop my elevator speech on what makes a difference in beekeeping, (laughs) which Lord knows a lot of people would like me to shorten that down, particularly uh, my family. The other thing that, that I really loved was even though she knew very little about bees other than she liked them in her garden, the light, the light in her face that she got what I was saying was so lovely because it, that type of understanding is what we all want, you know, the, t- the type of understanding where finally a thing makes sense to us. And that's how I hope over time and with your study of all kinds and with your hands-on practice, I hope you will begin to understand how the, the organism of your beehive, you get so familiar with it. You get so used to knowing what they look like, what they sound like, what they smell like, you know, when everything is going well. So that if any of that changes, you will be attentive enough to to do some extra checks and to, and to uh, see see what it is that's off or see what it is that they need. And so bravo, just that you're listening to a geeky bee podcast to me says you are intent about learning more about your beekeeping. And I say bravo, and I think you're going to do well. If you're a beginner, you are showing the signs of a person who ends up being a really good beekeeper. If you're already a really good beekeeper, well, I am honored that you would tune in. And experienced beekeepers, I am always interested in what your 
thoughts on things that made a difference? Where did you turn the corner in your beekeeping? Where did it start getting easier and better? I'd love to hear about those things. So anytime, drop me an email, blueridge714 at gmail.com. Hey, by the way, last time I left, I mentioned my email because I'm doing a fundraiser for Ukraine and, and some of you wrote, participated in the fundraiser and I owe you a squeeze jar of honey. The response to my fundraiser was almost overwhelming because <laughs> uh, I did it in my own community and then I mentioned it to you guys. So I do have your names. I have a list and I will be steadily working my way through it, but that might, might take me a while to get all the squeeze jars out. So the thing I see in a lot of chat online and chat among real live beekeepers about now in my area is about making split. Often with beginners, there is a big fearful urgency. If they manage to get their hives through the winter, then they are very afraid of them swarming away after all that work and they finally got them through and they're finally getting in the year that they actually might get honey. They become so worried about the hive swarming, that it seems to me like a lot of beginners split a lot earlier than regular experienced backyard beekeepers. And let me tell you why I said it that way. Because the other people who are splitting early are the professionals, the queen rearers, the honey producers. They are going to be doing a lot of things early because they have to push the bees so that They'll be in position, for example, with honey, you know, you need a, you need a big population in order to get the most honey when the flow is. And so if you have an early spring flow, like we do with tulip, poplar, and locust coming up here soon, hopefully you want to get your population as big as you can so that they're ready to bring that in. Now, the professional folks tend to do that by really pushing their bees with a lot of feeding usually, but they also have the skills to know how not to feed too much and how to push hopefully just enough, but not too much to get the bees big and populous before the honey season or for nuke producers to get the populations ready so that when the queens are ready to go, they have nucleus colonies to sell. So they tend to be out there early. The difference being they tend to have the skills to know how hard to push and just how early to go. New beekeepers, to me, once they start seeing often, uh, once they start seeing their hive get full, an overwintered hive start to get full, then the first thing is, oh, I've got to split, I've got to split, got to split. And maybe you do have to split to keep them in the box. But as with most things, if you know what your goal is, if you know what it is you're trying to accomplish, I think it's easier to go about accomplishing it. And for example, is your goal simply swarm prevention? so that you can get some honey or just swarm prevention so that you won't lose most of your bees? Or is your goal to make additional hives for yourself or to sell? Or are you wanting to do a little bit of both? Once you know what it is you're trying to accomplish, it's going to be easier to get there. So what I see sometimes is beginners who are ready to jump the gun to split because they don't want their bees to swarm. They know they want to make more hives. I want to go ahead and split my bees. But the thing you have to keep in mind for your particular area in splitting is you need all the pieces to be present out there for a successful split, meaning you end up with two strong hives where you used to have one strong hive. To me, what's helpful to remember is before it gets to be two strong hives, it's two weaker hives. 
And that's where you want to be careful and make sure that they have all the pieces that they're going to need to become two strong hives. So before I talk about the factors to make sure are in place before you split, I want to talk about one factor that may kind of ease your mind that you don't have to push so hard to split, or depending on your answer, it may make you more stressed and feel like you need to get out there and split quicker than you thought. And that is the age of your queen. And I don't simply mean the year of your queen. I do have some pretty old queens, but by now I've retired them down to nuke. So it's, if they swarm, it's okay. But the age of the queen specifically, but the age of the queen is going to matter. For example, when I look at my records and I see, I look out and say, wow, that hive is really going gangbusters. And then I look at my notebook and I see that I raised her, her birth month was April of last year. Then she has gone through in a full size hive. She has gone through an entire honey season, an entire fall, an entire winter. She's coming out on her second spring and she is going to be much more likely to want to swarm then if I look out and see a big booming hive and then I check my records and I'm like, oh, okay, I raised that queen. Her birth month was July of last year. So she was late in the summer and she probably overwintered like many of mine did in what's essentially a, the size of a, of a double nuke. Even if the population of those two hives are the same, the one with that younger queen I know is going to give me more time. A younger queen is much more tolerant to crowding and is just slower to swarm. A very new queen, you can crowd them incredibly. I mean, not that you'd want to, but if you ever accidentally do, you can crowd them incredibly. And you're like, I cannot believe that these bees did not swarm while I wasn't paying attention when they got this crowded. But that's the difference between a younger queen and an older queen. So even though those were both 2021 queens. The time that she started her queenly duties uh, really matters in how swarm prone she is this year. And that's another selling point, just by the way, uh, for those of you who, uh, who are getting skilled enough to kind of keep up with your yard and keep your young queens. You know, you've already learned how to make splits to make through frame-based queen rearing or the fancier techniques, whatever you want you can start becoming more attentive to keeping more of your yard with the younger queens. And that way you just don't have the, the same pressure to get out there as with a queen who has is, is entering her second full spring as a laying queen. So some of the other variables that can come into play besides the queen's age in months is the genetics of your bees. So for example, Italian bees tend to be very populous. They tend to raise a lot of baby Italian bees. They these tend to be the more the bright gold queens and sometimes the bees more yellow and they raise a lot of bees. It's no wonder that a lot of beginners that this is what they end up having because what better for a package or a nuke producer than to have a line of bees that just make tons and tons of bees. Well, Italian bees also tend to make a good amount of honey. And so for both honey producers and bee producers, that works. So there's a lot of those out there. They tend to be out ahead. For example, I've talked to some of my peers in the area 
who have more Italian bees and their bees are ahead of mine. I mean, I do live because of the elevation I live at and it's a cold spot <laughs> in the, in, in the mountains. Then my bees tend to be a little bit behind in the spring compared to some of the warmer spots, even in the same County, even at the same elevation, but in a different spot. Another big difference is the bloodline of my bees tend to be a carniolan line. And what they are famous for is overwintering in small little clusters, which is good because that means they're thrifty. They don't take as much honey to get through the winter. But then what they're really famous for is in the early spring, they lay low, they lay low. But man, once the weather picks up, once the flow starts, they began throwing out bees like you would not believe. They they can build their population so fast, go from very small to huge in an incredible short amount of time. And so that's, that's one of their little perks. Now, the downside to that is <laughs> they can go from not even near swarming to, oh my gosh, they're halfway out of the box in no time once the, once the weather gets leveled out. And so let's talk about the weather. So after that warm and balmy few weeks that tricked everybody, <laughs> everybody who's not been here in the mountains a long time into thinking we were, we had hit spring, of course, it just ricochets back to chilly, windy. We were down in the 20s at night over the weekend with a lot of wind. And as I look at my weather app on my phone right now, I'm looking at the next week. And over the next week, mostly the nights are just like in the 30s. So that's not, it's not too bad. A lot of the days are in the high 50s. There's some wind symbols on a few days. There's some cloud symbols on a few days. Oh, here's a day we get up to 68. But then right beside it, it says, look, 100% chance of rain. And so to me as an experienced beekeeper, when I look at that, a part of me is going, whew, glad I didn't make those splits. Glad this isn't the week that my queen is trying to get out. My The virgin queen is not trying to get out and get mated because this coming week would be a terrible week for that. Even on the days that it makes it up to 60, if it's cloudy, that's not going to be great flying weather for her. The definitely not the rainy days, not the windy days, because not only does she have to get out there and, you know, I think queens are pretty strong flyers, but all those big old chunky boys have to be out there too. And they have to find each other. And you need a bunch of chunky boys to make your queen happy. <laughs> so whenever I have made splits or grafted or whatever, and then you look ahead because you can't know then. And then the, you know, the, the weather app gets to the timetable and it's the week that your queen's supposed to be out there and the weather's awful. I mean, I'm just like, oh no, I hate that. And I mean, that's when I'm glad that I don't do all my queen mating um, at one time, because just think about it. If you're a queen producer and you have put a hundred new queens out in mating nukes, and then the week that is their window to mate is just really, really awful weather. You know, that whole batch of queens, not to say they won't get mated, but there'll be fewer of them that get mated. And even the ones who do will not be as well mated as maybe the batch that comes off the very next week because that entire week was warm and sunny. I don't know if you can hear that gust of wind, but yeah, so this is not a good bee flying day, <laughs> to say the least. So anyway, that was a long way around to say what I find myself doing as the years go by is I do not try to make my splits as early as I used to. There's a couple things for that is, um, well, I'll give you another plant example. There's this wonderful guy in town 
older fella who ran a little produce stand, but he was also a guy, any gardening question on earth in this area that you needed to know, you could go ask him and he would know the answer. So once I came back to Western North Carolina, after having been in Arkansas many years, I had kind of forgotten, you know, the the dates to do things in the garden. What was the best time to to plant my collards or my cabbage or tomatoes or whatever? So I would go ask him. And I can't even remember which which vegetable it was concerning. But in his very slow way, he told me, he said, you know, they say you can plant I'm just going to, let's, let's say tomatoes. I think, I think it might've been tomatoes. He said, you know, they say you can start planting tomatoes up here on this and such a date. But he said, I've tried it. I've tried whole fields of it multiple times. And he said, what I found is if I wait two, three weeks after that and plant my tomatoes, they end up catching up with the ones that I planted two or three weeks before. And he said, and this makes total sense, that the ones that he waited later they didn't have the chilly nights, which you know tomatoes hate. They didn't have that stress, and they didn't have the last of the spring rains and all the wind like we're having today. They didn't have to deal with all that stress. They just came out of the greenhouse, uh, young and ready to go, and then they went in a sunny field, and hopefully it was sunny and warm, and they ended up catching up or surpassing the ones that had been planted earlier. And I guess that's what I have found over the years with making splits, It's not that I couldn't make splits, you know, like back last week when we had that lovely weather. It's not that I might have gotten lucky and, you know, maybe my queen would get some pretty, those pretty warm days on the the window that she had to fly. But what I found is if I'm just a little more patient and can get to the more reliably warm weather, then they just don't struggle as much. You know, I don't have whole batches of queens that are poorly mated because, of cold spring weather. Now, around here, you can still have poorly mated batches of queens if you have a long stretch of rain. But anyway, I think that's part of the reason why I tend to be more conservative, a little slower to do my splits now after all these years. But another reason is that I've done it long enough. I've done bees long enough, finally, (laughs) finally hard won experience to be able to see the signs that they're thinking about swarming. I mean, I know you've probably heard me say that, you know, I look at them and you could just tell they're thinking about swarming and I'm not being silly and, but I can't explain what it is that I'm seeing precisely. Once you have some experience, you can literally look at your bees and get a feeling for where they are, get a feeling for whether they're struggling, um, getting, you get a feeling whether that they're, that's not enough population that's too many drones, that's not the right sound to hear from a hive. You know, you just imprint on all this stuff. I think what I've imprinted on and gotten used to are the signs of a hive prepping to swarm. Now, here's the thing. If you find your hive and they're they are prepping to swarm, you see the signs, then they have gone into swarm prep mode and there is not a lot you can do to make them get out of that mode. It is something that once they get their head in that place, it is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to get that their heads out of that place. Now, there's still things, plenty of things you can do to keep from losing that swarm, for example, like split them and splitting them in a way that they're not going to just go ahead and still swarm. But what happens is if you see them begin that swarm prep, you have a lot more options. For one, you have the option to not be pushed into having to split them. You have the option of giving them more room that buys you time before they start thinking of swarming again. 
I wrote down some of the signs of swarm prep, and I'm sure there's a lot more if you if you look up online things to look for. Of uh, now, <laughs> if you open up your hive and you see a queen cell that has a larva in it, you probably won't be able to see the larva. But if you see a queen cell hanging down that has royal jelly in the bottom, there's a larva in there. And that is a charged active queen cell. And once you see that, you they are at the tail end of the swarm preparations. But the things that you can see early and in time to kind of steer them in a different direction, one thing is to see a decrease in eggs or a decrease in small open larva compared to the amount of capped brood. And this is something eventually will begin to just jump out to you anytime you see it. On a hive that's just going along, not thinking about swarming, healthy, then then the, the brood that you see, you'll see almost, there's kind of a proportion of eggs to small open brood to big open brood to capped brood. Now, they'll almost always be more capped brood just because they have to stay under the cappings longer than they stay as open brood. But if you open a hive and you see a lot of capped brood, a lot of population, a lot of capped brood, and you don't see any open larva and you can't find any eggs, a lot of times the first thing a person thinks is, oh, something has happened to my queen. Well, that something might be that the worker bees have been industriously slimming her down where she looks very much like a a, a non-queen bee and getting her ready to swarm. One of the things that they do is they discourage her from laying eggs because the, the process of laying eggs keeps her queenly pheromones going. And if she stops laying eggs for any reason, whether something's wrong with her or whether well, for example, she's been caged. If a, a queen in a cage can't lay eggs, and so therefore her level of pheromone decreases, and that can actually be a reason that the bees uh, kill her when you introduce her. But that's to get off the subject. The gist is, if they want their queen to get in swarm physique, they discourage her from laying by running her around the hive, slimming her down, feeding her less, and essentially blocking her off from places to lay. And one of the ways they do that is you've heard it backfilling the brood nest. So if I, it's particularly this time of year and really all through swarm season, if I open and look at a frame that's a brood frame and in that middle that's open cells and I see what what I should be seeing are eggs and small open larvae, if I see those scattered around and in between, I see cells that are kind of glistening because there's nectar in them in that same circle then that's backfilling the brood nest. And what that's telling me is they are basically blocking off that cell. And so that mama queen, she's going to look in there and go, oh, there's nectar in there. I can't use that one. And this is a a part of the process of having her lay less so that she can get flight worthy. So if you begin to see backfilling or you begin to see that there's just a lot more capped brood and there's almost no open brood or eggs, those can be a sign that swarm preparation has begun. Again, to see a charged queen cell. Now I'm saying that a charged queen cell or active queen cell to distinguish it between just a queen cup. You know, they draw, they keep a few queen cups usually kind of all the time during the season. Certain lines of bees like Carniolans and Russians tend to keep a lot of queen cups. They're just ready in case they (laughs) change their mind and decide that they 
they need to get one going. I don't think Italians, uh, I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think Italians are more, if you start to see cups, then they may be starting that, that process. But other lines of bees like mine, I mean, I pretty much always have a certain amount of queen cups in there, but the important part is they're not very fully formed and they don't have anything in them. And that's what I've heard the the Brits call them play cups, which I think is a nice way of putting it. And so, so why is it important to distinguish where they are on that spectrum of swarm prep? If they're early in that process, um, like you just see in the spring, you have an overwintered hive, they're starting to get crowded. That's one of the, the triggers of swarm pet prep. You see a lot of nurse bees. The, the brood nest is very packed with nurse bees. You have a lot of capped brood, so there's more replacement troops coming in. There's, there's plenty of food that they've stored in the hive. Any populous hive like that in swarm season is potential. So some of the action I might take if I see that hive starting to get crowded and this is the first technique I want to talk about, is opening the brood nest. Some people will call this checkerboarding the brood nest. And even though I do say it that way in my everyday life, just for technicality, checkerboarding as the official bee technique is a nectar management technique. It is for uh, just doing nectar and honey frames. So technically speaking, if you are checkerboarding frames in a brood nest, you're really opening the brood nest, not checkerboarding. But anyway... You know what I'm saying. One of the methods is to give the bees, in particular the queen and her entourage, give them more room in which she can lay. As long as she is actively laying, she is not prepping to swarm. So to head off that downhill slide (laughs) to swarm preparation, when I see the brood nest starting to get thick and populated, I might start just casually when I'm doing a regular inspection, move the frames around in the sense that I'm inserting open, empty frames of drawn comb into the brood nest. Now, this has to be done thoughtfully. Obviously, you don't want to smack three empty frames in the middle of a brood nest because in the event you do have a cold night, you've spread the bees out too much. The brood area is divided into two areas. It's entirely possible the bees may make the decision, okay, it looks like we can save this half of the brood and we're just going to have to let the other half of the brood go. So you don't want to put that in this situation. So the earlier in the season, the cooler the weather, the cooler the potential weather, the more conservative you are with how much space you give them. Now, a lot of times a beginner will hear, oh, you need to add more space to the hive. So they take an empty box of foundation going out, go out, set it on top of a big hive and think they've added space and then are surprised when the hive swarms in a few days. So first of all, a frame of foundation, the bees, it will literally spread out the adult bees. In other words, it's simply more places for them to stand. So yes, they might be spread out a little bit. But beyond that, it doesn't do very much. If it's not wax drawing season, they're not even going to draw it out. So wax drawing requires a certain amount of young bees and a very specific temperature and a flow, whether that's from nature or from feeding. So you have to have all those components, but the temperature, and I can't remember the exact temperature range, is non-negotiable. And then also the age of the bees really makes a huge difference. So sometimes beginners will put foundation in thinking that, oh, the bees will now, you know, these these nurse bees that are just wandering around, they'll have something to do, they'll draw out this comb. They might, but if it's too early in the season and they can't get the temperature right, 
they're not going to draw wax yet. So the bees don't see foundation as extra space to lay unless they are able to draw it out with wax. Whereas that drawn comb that you have so carefully preserved, except for me, I let wax moths get a bunch. Um, Anyway, I can't even go into that. I'm so irritated with myself. But don't do that, Lee. (laughs) And don't do that, listeners. So if you have carefully taken care of your drawn comb and not let any get misfiled in the basement and uh, get wax moths, then you are in luck because you can open that brood nest up in a way that the queen instantly has all that comb to lay in. And even if they had been kind of thinking about, hmm, I wonder if we ought to start getting ready for swarming, then all of a sudden that all that beautiful empty comb They're just, because the bees are wonderfully OCD, they're going to feel obligated to fill that up if they have not gotten too far along the path of swarm prep. So drawn comb makes this process so easy. You can just strategically insert frames of drawn comb. Again, you're trying not to break up that orb of of the brood nest. But you're just trying to to insert, like what I like to do is if you, okay, so I have an eight frame box. And if right in the middle I might leave that frame that has bees and brood on it. And then maybe on either side of that frame, I would put an empty frame of drawn comb if the hive was populous enough. Or if they weren't populous enough, I might just put one frame of drawn comb somewhere toward the center, somewhere in the brood nest where she's going to find it right away and start laying. Now, where you get into the quote-unquote checkerboarding that is really opening up the brood nest, if you only have foundation, and that's a very real, I mean, heck, that's going to be my situation in some of my hives, then you can insert them here and there. Once the wax drawing season is upon us, then putting foundation into the brood nest is a fast way to get it drawn out because that just makes them crazy and they draw out that wax first thing because they do not want any naked foundation in the brood nest. And with all of these techniques, you have to keep in your mind that you're, you still have to have enough bees that on a cold night, they can cover all the frames of brood because chilled brood, like if, if, uh, if you get a really temperature, a bad temperature dip and the population is not so that they can cover it all, they will sacrifice um, a certain amount of brood. And interestingly, you know, this is a, a thing that drone brood tends to be on the outside edges of the brood nest. And that's just interesting because if anything is expendable to them, it's, the, it's that drone brood. <laughs> so they'll keep the worker brood tight inside and then put the drone brood on the kind of the outer edges of the brood nest so that if push comes to shove, well, they can make more boys when they when they need to. But also, I just heard in a podcast um, the other day, and I guess I'd never really thought about it. I have not had much trouble. I think once in all these years have I ever come across chalk brood, but I know in some places it's much worse. And I believe it was Stuart Spinks who mentioned recently that I guess in England, if they, if, if they get chilled brood, that that can often bring about a bout of... Um, brood and that was something I I wasn't aware of. So anyway, you don't you don't want to chill your brood and to avoid chill brood, all you have to do is move a little more conservatively, open up the brood nest more slowly. And this does have the effect of keeping the queen laying, keeping them busy building their colony. Now, this is something obviously that if you're focusing on honey, and typically speaking, you can lean in the direction of making more bees, more hives, or you can lean in the direction of making more honey. It's a lot trickier to do both of those at the same time. If I I think for me, uh, it's easier. I have 
certain hives, certain yards actually that I think of as my honey yard. Now I have to have some here at the house because my family wants honey from our actual little valley farm. <laughs> so some of these are honey hives, but sometimes I will have a whole yard with, I mean, just small scale for me, like maybe six or eight hives. And I think of those as my honey hives and I manage them in a way, like for example, if if one starts to dwindle for some reason, not look good, instead of worrying about requeening it with a queen, I might requeen it with a large nuke so that it can be jump-started back into honey production size faster. But a technique I want to tell you about, I believe I've mentioned it before, and I'm sure it, I, I guess it has an official name, <laughs> but I've always called it radical addition of space. Now this is a shock and awe technique if you have a hive, and, and this is for later in one season, meaning it's it's pretty reliably warm and it's for big really full populous hives. Where I use this technique, which in my notebook I write RAS, Radical Addition of Space, is if maybe I haven't been to a yard in a while and I open it up and go, oh no, I mean, if there's just bees elbow to elbow in there and maybe I'm like, oh man, I, I can't go through every frame and look for swarm cells. I bet there might be some started but I'm not sure. Then a trick that I will use, and and I've had I've had good luck with it, is I will take an entire box of drawn comb. Now I use all medium, so this is not like a deep box, and I don't exactly know how that. I guess that's possible, but you would have to be more careful. You would have to have a super overcrowded hive for it to work because you you wouldn't want to spread the bees out this much. I don't think with a with like a deep tin box. But if you happen to use mediums, this is a very handy technique. So I take that entire box full of drawn comb or as much drawn comb as I can find. You know, maybe it mostly drawn comb with some foundation in some places. But I'm going to take this box. I'm going to take the supers off of this hive and I'm going to put that empty box of drawn comb right on top of the brood nest. And then I'll put the supers back on. And so I have radically added a lot of space. And essentially I've created this giant empty attic above the brood nest. And this won't work if you put it on top of the hive. They, they'll put nectar in it, but they it won't help your brood nest situation. But what that empty box of drawn comb does in an, in an emergency and in a hive that has just packed itself elbow to elbow is it is such a startle to them. It's such a startle because they're so sensitive to that area right above the brood nest, what's going on there? Does the queen have more space to move up there and lay? Or does she hit a band of honey and there's nowhere to go up there? But if all of a sudden that is an empty box of drawn comb, then many times I have seen them stop swarm prep and address the situation as, you know, bees must. So that, you know, the queen is like, oh, hey, wait, look at all this all this place I have to lay. And so, and then the bees are like, oh my gosh, look at all this place. We need to tend. We need to clean it up. We need to move nectar around. We need to get our, our nice orb back going. And so I have had that work to stop them in their tracks uh, with warm prep. And it, it buys me some time to gather myself and figure out what I want to do with that hive. It's a radical addition of space. It is a technique. It's a little bit more advanced. It's not without risk. The main one being that that population has to be big enough to take care of, of that box. 
as particularly if there's any chance of, of cold weather, or I shouldn't even say cold weather, any chance of, you know, a cold night or a cold spell. So I hope that's given you some things to think about, some techniques to do some more research on, techniques for opening the brood nest that can buy you some time before you do your splits, just so that the splits can be perhaps in better mating weather, perhaps with better drone availability, or perhaps that just work better in your life. And the example I will give you is I have a family gathering that I have to go to in Arkansas. When the family member told me the date that this gathering had been planned, I just tried hard not to burst into tears right there because it is smack dab in the middle of my favorite time to do splits, to really get the yard going. But no, I will be away for a week from my bee yard in my absolute sweet spot of my spring season. Now, because I treasure my family, even more than my bees, I have to do it. What else is there to do? I'm going to try to be a big girl about it and not cry when I'm there and try not to be a jerk uh, before I leave to go there (laughs) or a jerk about it. But it has made me thankful for these techniques because as I'm doing my inspections over the next couple of weeks, I will be assessing hives with the thought of, okay, April, it's, it's, I don't know, like the third week of April, which is the perfect time to do splits anyway, that I have to go. So I'll be doing my inspections and also thinking about where, how far advanced is this hive in its growth spurt right now? Do I have time to just add a box on top of them and that's going to be fine. They'll be fine till I get back. Or do I need to physically open the brood nest a little bit, a little bit, because again, we're not, we're still in the realm of of potential cold spells at my elevation of the mountains. Or if I look at them and go, wow, something has to be done. They're not going to last till I get back. I mean, and and believe me, there's probably going to be swarms while I'm gone. And I actually told a bee friend of mine, I'm like, look, I'm going to give my house sitter your number. And if if there's a swarm and if you get it, you can keep it. (laughs) We'll see how that goes. But anyway, Remember how I told you, I think I've said that the fun of learning a bunch of different kinds of splits is you, once you, over time, don't try to do this all at once, you know, just get good at a couple of of methods and then you can start adding on the, the fun stuff. Then it allows you to tailor, to use the split that best suits your situation. So what I'm looking at are what are the kinds of splits I can make before I leave that will require no beekeeper intervention while I'm away. So for example, all those kinds of splits that I've talked to you about, you know, what I call queen maker splits, where you're going to go in on a certain day and pull out all the queen cells and distribute them into mating nukes. I can't do that because I'm not going to be here. Similarly, I cannot use any of those techniques like the one that I read to you last week that require you to go in and cut out um, all but one or two queen cells, one or two, because that depends on who writes the, the recipe. I believe he said cut out all but one, and then some people just can't stand it, and they'll go two and roll the dice on uh, on them swarming. I can't use any of those techniques that would require me to go back in and do anything during that catastrophic, I mean that particular week. <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. So, you remember how, just a couple weeks ago, how I said that I probably would not use Angie's 
runaway split, Angie and Sam's runaway split recipe because I, I liked my recipes better. Well, there you go. Eating my hat already because when I was plotting all this out, I thought, wait a minute, their runaway split recipe, even though it'll only make one queen, happens to be the perfect recipe for me because once it's done, as long as I do it before I leave, then both halves of those splits should be able to tend to themselves. And in a worst case scenario, you know, if that one queen doesn't come back from her mating flight, well, no big deal because I I have resources that I can rearrange and, and, and try it again. So I had added that technique to my toolbox and lo and behold, here is the thing where I'll use it. Just because it's simple, which is important because my time is really crunched up, now this month. And so I'm not going to have time to do the more complicated, for example, the more complicated cut down split. Again, that if you do a cut down split in the traditional way, you only have one frame of eggs that are going to have queen cells on it in that cell in that hive. And so it's, it's, it's much less likely that you're going to have a bunch of virgin swarms or after swarms. But with Sam and Angie's technique in a much simpler method, it achieves that one aspect, which is pretty much making sure that neither half is going anywhere. I feel really appreciative now that I know that. So I hope there was something in this ramble that turns out to be useful to you. A lot of the techniques that I talked about, um, I don't know how you would do radical addition of space in a horizontal hive, in a long lang or top bar or lay-ins. I'm not exactly sure how you could do that. But the opening the brood nest, I'm pretty sure that would just be a matter of kind of shifting the mind of uh, instead of create putting that empty comb above the brood nest, then you would just be putting it alongside the brood nest in a in a more horizontal hive layout. Oh, and next time I have the the funnest thing to tell you about a a new gadget that a new bee, bee friend and I brainstormed. And then her husband made it. It's a new gadget to help people get bees into their lands hive without having to do a package. So I'll tell you about that next time. I hope you all have a wonderful week. It's so fun thinking of you all out there working with your bees. So many of you are in warmer climates and everything I'm saying, you're already past all that part. <laughs> and so many other of you still probably have knee deep snow on the ground and you're nowhere near making a split. But it's just really enjoyable to think of all of you out there with your bees, all of us getting better and more skillful every season as beekeepers. I'm proud of you all and I cheer you on. So take care, stay safe, drop me a line anytime you want, and I will be back, Lord willing, with episode 100 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm as soon as I can. Take care.